powered by Transistor FM. Welcome to Friends, Foes, and Neither. Do not adjust your podcatcher settings, as what you are about to hear is real. It's the Derek Duvall Show. Prepare yourself for insightful interviews with incredible people. Join us now as we delve ever deeper into the human condition. And now, coming to you live to tape from the Derek Duvall Production Bunker, it's Derek Duvall! Hello, Duvall Nation. Hello. Hey, everybody. Hi. Thank you so much. Please sit. Thank you. Hello, Duvall Nation, and welcome to the Derek Duvall Show. We are back with another fantastic journey into the lives of extraordinary people. This episode is brought to you today by the fine folks at BetterHelp. BetterHelp is the world's largest therapy service and it's 100% online. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash Derek Duvall Show. That's better, H-E-L-P.com slash Derek Duvall Show. So before we jump into this episode, I want to say a massive thank you to my last guest, Jennifer Drummond. Her episode was very well received. And if you have not heard our very in-depth interview, I strongly advise you to check it out after the conclusion of this episode. Well, welcome to episode 202, and we have a very powerful episode lined up for you today. We have on the show Paul Bariff. Now, Paul is a documentary filmmaker and a photographer. Paul will be talking about how he got started in making films, his various projects he has worked on, working with The Beatles, and cheating death four times, including his powerful story of his involvement in the September 11th attacks, in which he survived the collapse of both towers. This is a very graphic retelling of that day, and there are some details that might be upsetting for some listeners, so be aware. Let's not waste any more time, and let's get Paul out here to tell the story of his absolutely incredible life. Duval Nation, please welcome the show calling in today from his home in North Yorkshire, England, documentarian Paul Bariff. Paul, hello. Welcome to the Derek Duvall Show. How is the weather out by you today? Well, it was fair this morning, but here it's uh, just beginning to rain and we're due for some heavy rain by uh, late after- afternoon. So uh, I think we've said goodbye to the summer over here now. No. <laughs> <laughs> so as the pandemic is winding down, how was it for you to navigate the COVID-19 world? Well, I work from home anyway, unless I'm out on the road filming or photographing. But just before COVID started, I started to develop a a new television series about cyber police squads. And I got the whole thing uh, researched and COVID hit. So we were all uh, stuck in our homes and things. So we couldn't get out anywhere and I couldn't meet anybody. So that disappeared and... Unfortunately, now COVID's over. We, the people that I actually researched, have moved on. So I would need to start over again. So I, I'm not going to bother with that at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> Very fair enough. So every journey has a beginning. Where were you born and what was it like to grow up there? Uh, I was born in Leeds in Yorkshire in the UK. I lived in a, a terrace house with my, my parents and my sister. It was great. In those days, we used to play out in the cobbled back streets with the gas lamps and all that sort of thing. I really enjoyed all that. 
It was there when I was, I think, about 12 or 13, my career really started. Um, I I began by, um, I had a two paper rounds, newspaper rounds, one in the morning, one in the evening. And uh, on a, a Saturday, uh, I used to uh, post Life magazine and Picture Post magazine, which in those days were the only way, you know, we got our news. Television wasn't like it is now, and neither was radio. And these magazines had fabulous black and white pictures in them, whole page pictures, not much dialogue not much text it was just pictures 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 and i used to stand in people's doorways at seven o'clock in the morning and, and and go through all these lovely lovely images and i think it was those images that started me on a on a journey with cameras and i i thought well one day i want to be a photographer with life magazine or be able to do this sort of thing and and that's how it all started really for me fair enough at what age did you get excited about movie making Movie making. Well, I, I I first got a job on on the Yorkshire Post in Leeds as a, a press photographer, and I was I've been three years doing that, and in fact I was covering the Moors murder trial with Myra Hindley and Ian Brady, the search for the bodies on the Yorkshire Moors. If you re- remember that story, a massive story, and uh, while I was there, uh, a chap from uh, the BBC approached me and said, would I like to um, join the BBC as a, a news film cameraman? And I think this was about 1967, 1968 time. And it so happened that my parents had bought me a, um, a, a Bolex clockwork camera for my 21st birthday. And uh, so I was obviously interested in movies back then. And so I, I said to this chap, yes, I had a lot I'd like to join the BBC, and uh, a few months later, I was working for BBC Television News, covering the whole of the north of England for for the network news, which was a great training ground for me. So that was the beginning of movies. Talk about that first camera. The camera, um, a Bolex camera, well-made metal construction. It had... um, um, uh, space for a hundred foot roll of film which lasted two and a half minutes you asked you had to wind the camera up because it was clockwork and no electric motors or anything and each wind up would last 20 seconds so that meant that every shot i did couldn't be more than 20 seconds and they used to send me out uh, with my camera and, and film news events fires and disasters and all that sort of thing. And um, I only had one role per story. So that meant I had to get the whole show, the whole sequence of events on a a two and a half minute roll of film. So you had to be very disciplined. You couldn't do things twice, you know, you had to get it right. And in those days, you know, we had to get the exposures right. There's no automatic exposure or anything on these cameras. So that was the very beginning for me. And that I, I learned a lot, a lot with, with that camera. And um, I think we within six months, um, I, I'd won an award uh, for news footage. So that, that was a great start for me. Within the six months, I then went off to... North America with a BBC producer. Um, I made a documentary of um, 
a team of canoes going down the Grand Canyon, down the Colorado River. It was the first time that the river had been run in 100 years. And uh, I managed to sell the idea to uh, the BBC Sunday evening uh, adventure show. We went and um, the film, 50-minute film, uh, was quite spectacular, which I shot with my Bullock's clockwork camera and separate sounds, separate sound. That was, we, we recorded just on a separate tape recorder back then. There was no sync sound for the camera. And the film won me the Documentary of the Year Award. Uh, so within a year of making television programs, I, I'd won the Documentary of the Year Award. And, and that set me on the path to where I am now, really. That's amazing. Uh, so my question to you is, you know, you mentioned, like you said, that you were a cameraman for the BBC. Talk about your time, you know, what sort of events were you covering in your time covering for North for the North and England? I was covering um, sort of lifeboat rescues, uh, fires and accidents and that sort of thing. Uh, and I, I realized that to get... Um, the stories I had to go to the source, and I made great contacts with the um, the, the control rooms of both the police and the fire service, and they um, they used to tip me off when some things were happening. It all started on when I went to a, a major hotel fire in in um, in Ilkley in, in Yorkshire. A lot of people had died in this hotel fire during during the night and the, the following morning i was sent there by the bbc to cover what was going on there and when i got there the, the fire obviously was out and the fire brigade were damping down and i met the fire chief there and he was quite surprised to see me because in those days there were no television news cameramen around apart from me and i arrived with my camera with the words of BBC television news on the side. And they said, oh, television. I said, yeah, I'm shooting for the nine o'clock network news for tonight. So his eyes lit up with that. And I said, unfortunately, you know, I'm here this morning. It would have been nice to be with you during the night when this thing was kicking off. Mm. So I said, well, well, come and see me next week. So the following week, I went to see him at his uh, headquarters. And he put me on a training course. Um, a fire, fireman's training course. I spent a week uh, learning to be a firefighter. And um, afterwards, he, they put me on the call-out list in the control room. So any fire engines going to any jobs, uh, more than three fire engines or a rescue, they would call me automatically. So as soon as the fire engines were turning out, I was turning out as well. And I arrived at fires and I donned my firefighter's outfit, which he'd provided me with, and I used to actually go into blazing buildings with them. So you can imagine, as a young, 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 uh, budding television cameraman, this was fantastic. I would go to places that most people were not allowed. So we we, we got some great footage, and, and this actually um, made the fire chief or his fire service quite famous and um, he was then appointed to the um, to to be head of the UK Fire Service. I believe that's through the footage of my of my films, which used to be aired three or four times a week on network news. So that was pretty good for a regional fire service to get network news coverage. But the the images were spectacular. I used to have 
blazing uh, mill fires, uh, mill fires, uh, buildings collapsing, um, train accidents, all that sort of thing. And and I was there. I used to go actually in and film all that was happening with the fire service. So that that was really spectacular. I want to ask you, you know, you spent seven, you specialize in observational documentaries for my listeners. Can you expand on that? Yeah. Um, observational do uh, documentaries are where the camera and sound uh, man are recording events that are happening and you're actually filming an organization or a person at work. Uh, we don't have any reporters with us. We're just recording events that are actually happening in front of you. So you are actually telling a story with the camera. You're following a group of people and uh, listening to what they're saying as well as filming them. And that's basically it, really. It's just follow, uh, following them in um, in their work. But it's quite a, a specialised business, observational camera work because yes you've got to get your, your your images right but also i'm listening to the sound i i have all my contributors wired up with radio mic so i can hear what they're saying and basically it's I, I, the, the camera is uh, putting you the viewer there as a, if you were there in person that's what you'd see and that's what you would hear unfortunately that sort of observational documentary seems to have waned in the last 10 or 15 years. And now um, the, the television um, commissioners are wanting more celebrities to be involved, and I hate that. And reporters as well. I don't have any reporters on my footage. It's just I'm there with a the camera, and I'm just following the stories as they develop in front of me uh, and, and go wherever the story takes me. Mm. It's storytelling with a camera, really. Mm. I want to fast forward a bit into your career. Talk about the time you spent with the now King Charles, filming him as a helicopter pilot. I, I was asked by a producer in London um, um, to um, spend some time with Prince Charles. He'd been commissioned to make a, a, a documentary about uh, Prince Charles, uh, who was a year younger than myself back then. Uh, I think we were in our sort of mid-twenties, and he just joined the um, Royal Navy as a helicopter pilot, and uh, he was training as a helicopter pilot, and we we were to follow him for about on and off for a year, following him in his helicopter and other events that he, he was attending, and it was uh, quite interesting because this was, I think, the first time that anybody had been allowed that close to uh, uh, one of the royal subjects and uh, I got to know him very well we uh, we spent time uh, abroad filming we we went to I went I flew out to Fort Lauderdale and joined Royal Air Force uh, carrier called uh, Hermes and Charles was on board with his squadron he'd formed a squadron I think he got five or six helicopters based with him we we um, sailed up to New Brunswick and um, on a, a military exercise with him. While I was on the um, carrier, we 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 spent a lot of time together. 
I was with Prince Charles at the cinema on Hermes and we watched a film called Poseidon. And um, it just so happened there was a, a big storm going on um, outside <laughs> in the Atlantic and we were being tossed around in the cinema and the screen was going backwards and forwards. When we were watching the Poseidon adventure and Prince Charles, he just he, he, he couldn't stop laughing. He said he thought it was absolutely fantastic. <laughs> um, we then uh, w- went on this exercise in uh, New Brunswick area and... Um, um, filming, doing various various things, and I remember one day I filmed him taking off in his helicopter. He had some rocket launchers on his um, on his uh, helicopter. They were practicing uh, targets around the area, and I think on the way back they uh, decided to shoot a portable toilet that was in a field somewhere, and uh, they shot this thing with a rocket. And I remember when he got off off the helicopter, I said, "I." Uh, I think I've just made a big mistake. I said, what was that? He said, I've just fired a rocket at a, a portaloo, but we didn't check that there was anybody in it. <laughs> so, uh, obviously, there wasn't. <laughs> Otherwise, the world would have known about it by now. Yeah. But it was great. It was very amusing, and we had a, a really great time with him. That's amazing. Talk about your time on the documentary Lessons of Darkness. As This one I remember seeing years ago about the aftermath of the Gulf War. Yeah, well, it's been going for some time, the Gulf War, and as we all know, a lot of the oil wealth, oil fields were on fire. In fact, most of them were. And I thought this would make a great documentary uh, to go and film the firefighters trying to extinguish all these fires and find out how they did it. And I talked to the uh, Channel 4 channel in the UK, who said they were very keen to do it. And um, it just so happened that they had a, a note from Werner Herzog, <clears throat> the famous documentary filmmaker, who too wanted to to make a film out there, but he couldn't get any passes. Apparently we had to have several uh, passes and visas and goodness knows what to get into the country. I'd already got that. I cleared the way politically to go in with the camera. So um, I flew out to um, Germany to see uh, Werner Herzog, who said he would be keen to cooperate uh, as a co-production with myself and him to make a film. So that's how we got together. And uh, we went out there and um, I made a, 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 an amazing 50-minute documentary of spectacular film, Lessons of Darkness. Um, and I still think that's one of the best films that we ever made. I also took with me uh, my favourite helicopter crew. Um, I, I knew... Uh, I, I'd spent some time after doing the... <clears throat> I spent some time after doing the Prince Charles film with the Royal Navy rescue helicopters at Kuldrose in Cornwall. And one of the pilots, when he retired, set up his own television uh, helicopter filming business. And I'd done some work with him. And um, I mentioned that I was going out to uh, to film the uh, uh, footage of the oil wells. Could he come with me? So he came with, with his team and hired a helicopter out there and uh, he did all the aerial shots for me. 
Um, so I took all the all the crew in with me and uh, and and everything and and, and met Werner out there and we did, did this film together. I want to fast forward um, to a, another question, and that is, you know, you've done some Bond work. Yeah, talk. Tell us about your time on the set of Live and Let Die. Yes, that was a, that was the same producer that um, introduced me to Prince Charles. He was commissioned to do a film, I think it was for Cubby Broccoli, the producer of uh, the Bond films, uh, about Roger Moore in his first production of uh, a James Bond film as 007, Live and Let Die. So we went out to Jamaica and New Orleans and joined the film crew there and spent, I think, about about six or eight months with them uh, making this hour-long documentary, which was great because it, it gave me a, an insight into how the, the big camera people worked, if you know <laughs> what I mean, the cinema people. Uh, oh, I'd never come into contact with before, so I did learn a lot about cinematography and, 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 and filmmaking through just being there watching what they did. And I got to know uh, uh, Roger very well, and Jane Seymour is um, leading actress. A great story about Jane, um, I think it was when the first first or second week of the uh, shooting in uh, Jamaica. I wasn't filming on this particular day, so I went for a dip in the sea. Um, I'd been in the, the sea about 10 or 15 minutes in this amazing turquoise sea, in the background, there was a cliff with this lovely big white hotel on top where we were staying. And I'd been paddling around in the water for about 10 minutes and I, I, there was no one else around. And suddenly I saw this figure coming out towards me. As she got nearer, I recognised recognized who it was. It was Jane Seymour. And she'd just flown in from London to start shooting. But she too was having the day off, so she she'd seen me in the water, and she came out and came up to me and said, "Paul, would you like me to? Uh, is it all right if I, I I swim with you?" I said, "Jen, I don't mind at all." <laughs> so there she was in in a bikini, two or three feet in front of me, and I was what probably only about twenty four ages of age, and um and there I was with a real life Bond girl, which was absolutely fantastic. Uh, <laughs> Uh, with this lovely backdrop, uh, amazing images, although I didn't have a camera with me at the time. <laughs> and um, it was one of those moments where, you know, in life that things could change. Um, you either go down one route or another. And um, we started to, we went out for a few meals after that uh, meeting. And... and um, uh, I thought, do I go any further with this? And unfortunately, or not unfortunately, I just got engaged uh, to my wife um, and um, didn't pursue that any further. So it was an opportunity that I missed, I think. <laughs> um, but there I was, you know, uh, mid-twenties watching this, um, uh, well, with this this fabulous girl and only a year or two later, I'd been in the cinema in, in in Headingley in Leeds, where I live, watching all these Bond films, and there I was with the real one. It was absolutely fantastic. That's amazing. What a great story. Uh, I am a huge NASA junkie, as you can see behind me. 
Uh, yeah. so, so tell my listeners what it was like to have unparalleled access for the documentary Astronauts. Well, there again, it was uh, all my programs come from me being interested in the subject, but wanted to know more about it. And I think this was the early 90s. I've been watching the space shuttle launch and then come back on news bulletins, and that was about it. You'd, you'd see the astronauts coming out of their base um, in Florida, um, going to the coach that would take them to the shuttle. Uh, you'd see them going on board, and then the thing would take off, and then the next thing you would see was them in space, in um, uh, flying around the cockpit and waving to the camera. Then the next shot was the heli- the uh, not the helicopter, the space shuttle land- landing again. And I thought, well, there must be more to it than all this. So I approached NASA and asked them if um, I could, could make a documentary following a shuttle crew. So I was invited across to Houston. I met all the astronaut management team and they asked me why I wanted to do it. So I just told them what I just told you now. And I said, I'd like to know more about it. And um, I'm sure there's more to it than just uh, walking out to the space shuttle and taking off and then uh, landing again. And they said, yes, there is. And I got um, a commission to spend a year with them. They let me spend a year with them uh, behind the scenes with one shuttle crew from beginning to end. And that was amazing. Um, I mean, uh, we were based in Houston and then in Florida, and we would rehearse, or the crew would rehearse every day situations that might develop in the uh, space shuttle. And there we were with them, with, with the camera. So I got some lovely footage. And the film was a, quite a personal story of the astronauts because we were also living with their families and their children. So I got access to all that. And I, I, I believe, I still believe that I'm, I'm, I'm the only documentary person that actually had the access, free access to, to NASA, you know, behind the scenes and, and scooped all the Americans on that. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So I want to fast forward to an event that you partook in, in September 11th of 2001. For my listeners who may not be aware, you are a 9-11 survivor. I've got some questions about how you survived the collapse of the towers. And we'll start with a very simple one. Where were you when the first plane hit Tower 1? I'll go a bit earlier than that. I was in America making a a documentary series called Animal Precinct about the ASPCA in New York City. And um, I was um, in their office in the Upper East Side um, at quarter to nine that morning when someone came in and said a plane did the one of the towers of the World Trade Center. And ironically, myself and eight film crew were staying in apartments just two blocks away from the World Trade Center. And I thought, wow, this this sounds interesting. But we all thought it was a light aircraft at first. I called my telephone, my wife who was in the apartment and um, asked if she could see anything out the windows. And she said she could see people running and hear lots of sirens, but that was it. So I said, oh, right. So my my news instinct kicked in again. So I grabbed my assistant producer and my sound recordist and um, 
we left the animal team and drove down to Lower Manhattan. And just as I got there, I grabbed my team and we drove down to Lower Manhattan. As I got there, the uh, Deputy Five Commissioner, Steve Gregory, was just arriving to set up his control point in West Street, which is a main street under the South Tower. And uh, um, I thought, wow, this is this is amazing because here I am now. We've got two buildings on fire in front of me. The second plane had actually gone in when we got there. And um, this was a guy that was controlling everything that was going on uh, around us. And I thought, well, he's like the Steve McQueen in Towering Inferno. This is the guy I should be with. And I'd been there filming him about 20 minutes. People were jumping out the windows. Most of the people in the area had left. The police and fire department had got them out of the way. So it was mainly emergency personnel there. I was in the middle of a shot uh, uh, as Gregory was writing down the number of appliances that were arriving at the scene. And uh, there was this loud bang explosion and I camera was running at the time I panned the camera around to sit and up to see the top of the south tower just uh, begin to collapse in front of me so I was there w- with this thing coming towards me I was still filming my sound recorder was to my left and I could hear all the firemen running and um, I stood there for about two or three seconds well that's a long time when you've got hundreds of thousands of tons of tons of building coming down towards you. And I, I couldn't, I, I was just looking through my viewfinder and I saw all this stuff falling towards me rapidly. Uh, I could hear all the firemen shouting, run, run, run. They were running down the street and I held the shot for about two or three seconds. And I thought, Hmm, it's getting close now. So I shouted to Lulu, my sound recorder, to start running. And we, um, we started to run, down the street um, towards where the firemen had run. And um, the noise was quite incredible. It was like being on a runway with a jumbo jet bearing down on top of you. But the sound was just amazing. I couldn't see what was going on, but my camera was still running and I had the camera pointing backwards, looking up at the building as I ran down the street. And the next thing that happens, everything goes black. Uh, the camera, I remember the camera leaving my hand in slow motion and everything goes black. And that was it. And I'd been hit by something. What I don't know, but uh, it had knocked me unconscious. Apparently, I was lying in the debris for about half an hour. I thought I wasn't lying in the debris for seconds, but apparently I was un- underneath for about half an hour and I was lying there when tower number two fell down as well. Uh, the next thing I recall was crawling through all the debris. I couldn't see anything. It was pitch black. My mouth, my nose, my eyes were full of gunge. It was like a cement mix. Uh, and stuff was still falling around me. Um, I didn't know that the towers had collapsed. All I remember seeing the top of the tower collapsing. Uh, but I didn't know that, you know, the tower had collapsed. In fact, both towers had collapsed. So I started crawling through all this debris. I could hardly breathe. I was trying to get this stuff out of my mouth. And I was hot. Uh, My trousers were scorched. Uh, Everything around me was on fire. 
um, and I started to crawl down the street. Now, as I said earlier, uh, I've been trained by firefighters to be in smoke-filled buildings, and they always said if there's a lots of smoke everywhere. If you get down to the, to the ground, three or four inches above the floor, there's always air. On this day, there wasn't any air at all. Uh, so I thought, it was the first time in my life that um, I thought I might die. Um, I didn't know the full extent of what had happened, but I knew it was in this black, nightmarish hell at home. And um, with all this stuff still flying around, I was still trying to get the stuff out of my mouth. So I started to crawl down the street and I suddenly put my hand right hand out and I felt a motor vehicle, a car. And I thought, wow, all these the cars that are parked here must be um, facing the, the Hudson River. There were no cars parked in West Street, the Main Street. So th this was the side streets I was now in. I thought if I follow the cars, by feeling the cars, I will get to the River Hudson and hopefully get myself down and be able to breathe. I got to car number three and I ran my hand down and I fireman's tunic and a, a, an air bottle and I, I remember shouting, can I use your air? He didn't reply, so unfortunately he must have been one of the casualties. And I started to crawl further down the street. Um, visibility was still zero. Everything was black. Uh, I was having difficulty breathing. Um, I was covered in all this stuff. And uh, my trousers were afire. Um, uh, and I, I remember trying to get those out and uh, um, I, I, I caught further down the street I was sweating a lot and then suddenly the visibility started to clear slightly and I could see 10, 15, 20 yards in front of me it was amazing everything had gone from colour to, to monochrome to black and white the trees were over and it, it was now dead silent uh, apart from small explosions I could hear and I remember seeing there's an empty ambulance in front of me with its lights flashing. It looked like a lighthouse on a foggy day. It was amazing. Uh, and and I, I stood up at this point and I I remember thinking, wow, I'm, I'm still alive. Again, not knowing the extent that you all, everybody around the world had seen what had happened. <clears throat> but the, amazing, the amazing thing is that those of us that were actually underneath it, did not know what had actually happened. The television pictures that the world saw were, saw were long shots. Uh, and you could see the tower coming down. Those of us that were underneath it didn't see it come. We, we, we knew it was coming down, but we didn't know to what extent. Um, so I didn't know that that had happened. And everything around me was just on fire. Vehicles were tossed around like in a, uh, a scrapyard. And I stood up and... I suddenly had this awful feeling, where's Lou, Lulu, my sound recordist, and being um, uh, the producer of the show, I was in, in charge of the welfare of all the team, obviously. And I remember starting to shake and I was shivering and I thought, where the hell is she? So at that point, I backtracked back down the street. I just crawled down. I climbed over burning, well, cows that had been on fire to the point where we'd been hit in West Street and um, I couldn't see anybody. There's nobody around at all. I couldn't see Lulu. I couldn't see anybody. And um, I, then I, I suddenly saw the top of the sound mixer that she'd been using. So I bent down and started to dig that out of the debris. And um, I followed the camera cable and found my smash camera underneath that. But there was no Lulu around. So I thought, wow, she must have, that's good. She, she's got out of it, got away. And I remember standing up there, I put the sound machine around my neck and held the smash camera. 
the lens had been completely decapitated. Um, and um, I stood there looking at this amazing um, apocalyptic sight in front of me. The building to my right was on fire from the ground floor to the top. 34-story building was well alight. And all the vehicles in front of me, fire units, police cars, ambulances were all on fire. And just, I mean, visibility was only about 50 yards, but I could just make out that the bits of the tower was embedded in the road in front of me. It still didn't hit me that the whole lot had collapsed. It was all covered in a veil of mist as well, and, and, and there was still stuff floating down, paper and goodness knows, and goodness knows what. And um, I stood there looking at all this amazing sight, and then I looked down at the most smashed camera and the tape recorder, and at that point something said, I'd cr Paul, you've crossed the line. Normally I would have gone in with or without a camera to try and help to see what, if I could help anybody. But something said, turn around and get out of here. So I, I did. And um, afterwards, I was told that I was probably the first life person in the epicenter of it uh, at that time. Everybody else was either killed or they'd gone out of the area. I was still the only life person at that point. So anyway, I, 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 did, I turned around and started to make my way back down West Street. Um, and I clambered over the cars and there was still some on fire and debris everywhere. And, and it was still, visibility was only about 100 yards. I managed to get back to the um, Ocean Apartments where we were staying uh, down in Battery Park and um, went into the lobby. And uh, I, as soon as I got in there, there's a voice I heard. It says, hello, Paul, we wondered where you were. And it was Lulu. And she'd been rescued by one of the firefighters and they grabbed her and they'd run into an underground garage out the way. So she was fine. Uh, so they gave me some water to drink and she said, the back of your shirt's covered in blood. And it, that was the first time I knew I'd been injured. And um, the story goes on from there, really. <laughs> That's incredible. What, a, what an incredible story. Um, I have a couple of questions about that day. Um, is it true that you were supposed to have breakfast that morning at Windows of the World? Yes. Um, my wife was staying with me um, in Ocean Apartments, which I said earlier was a couple of blocks from the World Trade Center. And about a month before that th that day, my wife had arranged for my, my children. My son uh, was a policeman in Leeds and my daughter was living in London to come out for a long weekend uh, and stay uh, the Monday, Tuesday, and go back on the Wednesday. And so we, she'd arranged for us to have breakfast in Windows on the World, which is a restaurant on, uh, on the top floor of the World Trade Center on the morning of the 11th of September, that morning. Uh, and we booked a, a table for about 8, 8.30 or something like that. And um, um, as the days approached, um, we got a call from my son who said he can't make it on on the day it was coming on the weekend uh because um he had to do an extra shift and uh, the police station and um my daughter rang and said she was going to be delayed as well so we actually can cancel the breakfast and thank god we did because we would have been up there amazingly on that morning when the plane hit 
So, you know, we, we, we were saved just by fate. That's incredible. Um, how are you able to gain access to the site yeah, as opposed to other people? Well, about a month before 9-11, um, it, well, uh, let me go back. In television, you're always thinking about the next project you're doing. You have to start developing and researching projects before the film that you're making uh, is finished. And I was doing a film about the animal uh, cops in New York at the time. And I was looking towards looking at doing another project in the area. And I, I'd always wanted to follow a New York fire chief. And um, in early August, um, the month before September 11th, I uh, met up with a, a fire chief called Mike Putziferi and um, went to see him about doing a documentary about him and his team that I would start shooting after after um, after the Animal Precinct series I was doing. So I spent two or three days with him, and um, uh, researching the work that he did and how he did it and, and how the firehouses worked. And it was great, and I, and I knew that I, it was such a great character, this, this chap, that he would make a, the subject of a great television series. So I was I was planning doing a film about the FDNY following the Animal Precinct series. Anyway, that you know, we we said goodbye in mid August, and I said, look, I'll come and see you when I finished um, in late September shooting Animal Precinct. Little did I know that we we're going to be seeing seeing each of them much earlier than that. Um, Nine Eleven came. Uh, I got involved with the the, the fire the fire chief Steve Gregory and Co down in West Street. The buildings collapsed, and then I eventually came back to I was I came back to England for a week, and then um, I started planning a documentary about the fire department. And, and now they'd come to terms of what had happened, and how many men had lost, and how it was affecting them, and. Um, I called Mike and said, look, Mike, I'm coming back out. Um, he wasn't there immediately the towers fell, but he was called in, you know, with all the other firefighters that day. I came back to um, New York and started to make the documentary uh, about the 9-11 the, the incident. And um, the first day I was at Ground Zero, uh, I heard this voice saying, hello, Paul, it's Mike here. And, and he... he, he become one of the chief officers at the uh, at ground zero so i automatically got access to uh, to it all which was quite a privilege really for me yeah. and then i stayed with mike for the next six or eight months at his station and down at ground zero working down there yeah. and uh, he ended up doing the narration and presenting the television film 9-11 the firefighter story yeah, for yeah me. we're gonna we're gonna mention that documentary in a little bit um one Two more questions. Uh, some of the most horrific images of the day were the sight of people falling out of the World Trade Center. Uh, you mentioned you saw that. How many people would you say you saw fall out of that building? Um, oh, about a, a dozen or so. I didn't do any filming of them at all um, for obvious reasons. Um, uh, but as we were filming, Steve Gregory and his um, uh, management team uh, you know, uh, in, in below the South Tower, in the in the early 
minutes of the incident, there were still people still jumping around us, and we could hear them coming down. Um, but that that was quite horrific, and um, it was that that affected some of the firefighters more than anything else. You know, some of them still haven't come to terms with it. Um, uh, and one of the chiefs there, um, at the scene, the safety officer, he was badly affected by all that and resigned, I think, shortly afterwards. And I, I still think he's been badly affected by that uh, uh, more than anything else. Um, I mean, it was really horrific to see. Uh, one last question. And like I said, you don't have to answer this one if you don't want to. And we'll, we can skip it if you want. Have you had any health complications from your exposure to the debris? Well, after coming through 9-11 and uh, surviving all that I did that day and where I was, in fact, that morning um, when we were running down the street, well, before we started running down the street, there were tw 22 firefighters and others with us, um, and only four of us survived. And it depended which way down the street you run. If you'd run down West Street and turned left or to the right, you didn't make it. Those of us that went straight down West Street survived, and there's only four of us actually survived that particular collapse. So I was lucky, and I was very lucky to be where I was and survive it. So that was it, I th so I thought. About a year ago, and we're now looking at what, 22 years after the event, um, I went to hospital for a, a minor complication and the staff there did a, a scan, MRI scan. And afterwards, one of the surgeons said, um, you're fine, there's nothing much with you, but we found a small trace on your lung. Uh, we think it might be pulmonary fibrosis. Anyway, I was referred to a specialist in lung disease uh, and he confirmed that I'd got this disease and apparently it's uncurable at the moment. And um, he said, well, it's obviously a result of 9-11, uh, inhaling all the dust and debris that was falling around you. And, um, you know, I, I think that's what, what, what the origin is. And um, I've late, later discovered that I think under this last week, over 343 firefighters have died with it. And others, I think that they're in the thousands now that have died with these pulmonary and other um, effects from, from that debris that day. So after all this time, I've had four near-death uh, escapes before. I've been in a helicopter crash. I've been on sinking ships. I've been blown off a volcano, et cetera, et cetera. Survived all that and survived 9-11. Now it's catching up on me, and the surgeons have said, well, you've got a lifespan of five years. It might be more, it might be less. So I don't know. I mean, uh, we'll just see where fate takes me now. I'm fine at the moment. I've, I've had regular checks, and everything seems to be okay. But it just shows you after all this time, uh, I think more people have died now from the effects of what happened that day than actually died on that day um around the country so um it's caught up with me eventually so that's uh, i just have to wait and see
Okay, Duval Nation, we are going to go ahead and take a small break right here, but we will be right back with the conclusion of this interview with Paul Bariff. Please refresh that drink and pay attention to a few friends of my show, and we will be right back. Enjoy listening to podcasts and ever wonder, can I make a podcast? But it seems so complicated, and good audio production can take time. What if there was a way to create an amazing podcast easily? Well, now there is. Introducing Podcasting Made Easy from Podtastic Audio. My production team will handle your entire audio production, allowing you to be the star of your show. This is Podcasting Made Easy. How easy? Well, so easy, you don't even have to press record. Now that's easy. Your listeners are waiting. Let's deliver. Sign up for a free strategy call today at podtasticaudio.com slash easy. Hello, Duvall Nation. Derek Duvall here. Mental health is not only a top priority in my life, but it should be in yours too. As a combat military veteran, I have seen what untreated mental health looks like, which is why I've been using a therapist for well over a decade. Seeing a trusted therapist has helped me reconcile life events and other important things I've been witness to since returning home from the service and has changed my life for the better in many ways. Which is why going forward I am pleased to announce that BetterHelp will be sponsoring The Derek Duvall Show. BetterHelp is the world's first therapy service and it's 100% online. With BetterHelp you can tap into a network of over 30,000 licensed and experienced therapists who can help you with a wide range of issues. To get started, you just answer a few questions about your needs and preferences in therapy. That way, BetterHelp can match you with the right therapist from their network. Then, you can talk to your therapist however you feel comfortable, whether it's via text, chat, phone, or video call. You can message your therapist at any time and schedule live sessions when it's convenient for you. If your therapist isn't the right fit for any reason, you can switch to a new therapist at no additional charge. With BetterHelp, you get the same professionalism and quality you can expect from in-office therapy, but with a therapist who is custom-picked for you. More scheduling flexibility and at a more affordable price. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash Derek Duvall Show. That's BetterHelp.com slash Derek Duvall Show. Hi, this is Glenn. And this is Sonia from Echo Valley. And you are listening to The Derek Duvall Show. Here's a song called Faces in the Mirror from our album Anarchy and Alchemy. This is Benjamin Sledge, author of Where Cowards Go to Die. In my award-winning memoir, you'll discover the raw humanity, intricate complexity, and brutal barbarity of those who served in the Iraq and Afghan wars, and the psychological toll it took on modern veterans. You can purchase Where Cowards Go to Die on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or anywhere major books are sold. Look for me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Benjamin C. Sledge. Hey, it's Michelle Fabre, and you're listening to The Derek Duval Show. You can hear my brand new single, I'm All That I Need, on all streaming platforms right now. Janae Sergio, arriving. 
Hello, everyone. This is Janae Sergio, life coach, combat veteran, and best-selling author. I invite you to purchase my new book, Perfectly Flawed, a veteran's journey from homeless to hero. In these pages, you will learn about the lowest struggles of my life to the absolute triumphs that have made me the strong woman I am today. Follow along as I talk about homelessness, my naval role in Operation Enduring Freedom, navigating insurmountable odds, and how I dealt with and overcame them. You can find Perfectly Flawed on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever books are sold. Welcome back to episode 202 of the Derek Duvall Show. Let's get right back to it with the conclusion of our interview with documentary filmmaker Paul Bariff, OBE. Uh, like you said, uh, this is not your first brush with death. You had three other near-death experiences. Uh, let's explore them. Talk about your volcanic experience. Yes, I, I'd made a, a, another documentary about a chap called Sir Francis Chichester, who was the first person to sail solo around the world on a, a yacht way back in the, was it the 60s or 70s. I can't remember now. And um, I'd been filming him in, I was filming his life story, and I filmed him arriving in Nicaragua, just in a transatlantic um, crossing on his yacht to try and break another record. And I met up with uh, some guys at the British Embassy in Nicaragua who were, in their spare time, volcanologists. And I got chatting to them at uh, a party that we're holding for Sir Francis Chichester. And they said, tomorrow we're going up to check out this volcano that's smoking a bit about 20 miles north of the city, would I like to go and join them? I said, so obviously me being who I was, I, uh, I <laughs> grabbed my camera and said, yeah, I'll come with you. So the next morning, it was a Saturday morning, we um, we went up to this um, um, volcano and uh, yes, it was, it was spewing out stuff, you know, smoke and things, but it didn't look too menacing at the time. So we started to climb this thing and we got virtually to the top and suddenly there's a loud explosion and all these rocks start flying out, shooting up. There's no lava, it was just rocks flying out and um, landing everywhere, big things, bang, plop, plop, plop everywhere. We got tin helmets on, but uh, luckily they didn't hit us, but this stuff was falling all around us. So the guy said, come on, let's get out of here. So we start to run down down this massive, uh, it was like ash, a uh, mountain of ash. The thing had been spewing stuff out for four weeks before. So we legged it down this mountainside, and uh, I remember there's Nick, uh, uh, iguanas running around everywhere, and uh, I could hear the sound of all these rocks falling around us, but luckily none of us got it with them. And uh, we got to the base of the... Um, um, volcano and uh, we just virtually collapsed. We've been breathing in all these uh, noxious fumes that were being spewed at the mountainside and uh, we virtually become semi-unconscious and some of our clothes have been blown off. I was covered in this black tarry stuff. It was just amazing and we were crawling around, you know, it was, it was awful and um, I remember we were looking for the um, jeep that we'd arrived in and uh, uh, to try and find our way out. And um, 
I remember seeing a, a railway line and I remember we'd parked near a railway line. So I suggested to the guys that we follow the railway line. So we did. And uh, we suddenly came across a, a house and we, I remember we, we knocked on the door and uh, semi -naked, three semi-naked blokes and this woman arrived at the door and we were we said we wanted some water we were very thirsty so she brought this big bowl of water and we put our faces in it and started drinking gallons of this stuff <laughs> amazing and um then we continued our journey following the railway line and there sure enough was the um the jeep so we managed to get back eventually to the city and i remember spending two hours in the shower trying to get all this stuff off me but uh, I did some filming of the explosion, but I abandoned my camera on, on top of the uh, volcano so the world never saw the footage of that explosion. That's crazy. Now, like I said, we that's three near-death experiences as well. Let's talk about the helicopter crash. Yes, I um, I spent a year with the Royal Air Force Search and Rescue helicopter team in Lossiemouth in the north of Scotland. It was busiest... Um, rescue team in the United Kingdom and um, uh, the idea was I'd spend 12 months filming um, their incidents they cover mountainsides and also a big chunk of the North Sea the, the most violent part of the North Sea with oil rigs and a big shipping fraternity there so this would make a great television series I thought which in fact it did <laughs> um <laughs> Um, one weekend we went to um, uh, a town called Fort William in the north of Scotland to do some exercising with the um, Ben Nevis mountain rescue team and we were flying around the area just checking out some rescue huts where climbers would shelter if they were in difficulties with the mountain rescue team and we were about 100 foot above the ground and the pilot came on the intercom and said, I've got an engine out. We're going down. We're going in. Um, the helicopters that they, they used were seeking helicopters with two engines. The idea is that if one goes out, you've got a second engine that will pull you out of the situation, whether you're over the sea or in the mountain and get you back home. Well, it needs, when an engine goes out, the helicopter obviously drops and it need, needed over over 100 foot to regain speed, to get speed up in the engine number two. And we were too close to the ground and, and the pilot came on and said, we're going in. And I remember looking out the window, I was strapped in at the back of the helicopter and I just saw the ground coming up and then bang. I remember being flung around and it was like being in a washing machine. Everything was going over and over and round and round. And I think my seatbelt came off for some reason or other. And the next thing I remember was the, um, um, I was lying on my back in, in this blackness and spoke for a cockpit. And suddenly a face, a face appeared and it was... Um, Bob Parpney, the winchman, who said, come on, Paul, the helicopter's on fire. We're the last ones in. And what had happened, we'd hit the ground and we'd roll down the mountainside about three quarters of a mile with everything flying off this thing. And there was me on board and my sound recorder, some four members of the mountain rescue team and the two pilots. 
Um, so it was stopped. It, it stopped rolling, and, and everyone had got out, and I was the last one out. I'd got this um, stretcher trapping me in in the in the back of the helicopter, and uh, the winchman had managed to pull this off and grab me, and we went out of the the helicopter window, which was now the on the roof of this thing, and it was on fire, and. Uh, uh, we managed to escape that, uh, and that was a lucky, lucky day. You should never escape from a helicopter, and especially one that was in that situation that, that uh, actually fell a hundred feet and then rolled down the mountainside. Um, that was quite horrific as well, but we survived that. Mm. And finally, the sinking ship. Yes, again, it was while I was making the film with the uh, Royal Air Force um, rescue people. Um, as I did in the early days with the firefighters, I would go into blazing buildings. Well, I used to go down in situations, some situations with the helicopter winchman. I'd go actually follow him down with my camera. And we went to a ship that was actually sinking uh, in the North Sea. And uh, we'd been on board about 10 minutes. The guys on the, uh, the, the, the helicopter crew were trying to get pump water out of this thing, but the, the water was coming in faster than it was going out. And it started to list, and um, the fishermen had actually inflated a, a life raft or a live, a live. They had a dinghy next to the uh, next to the the fishing boat, and I remember the winchman shouting, "Let's get off! It's going down!" So I jumped into this thing with my camera running, and. Uh, as I got into it, I swung round just, and the ship was just literally going down. I managed to capture it actually going under the water. Um, and the winchman and the two crew had jumped off into another dinghy. And so we all got off in one piece, but that was another close shout. Um, another sank or two, and, you know, I may have gone down with it. So it was very lucky. And again, I filmed all that happening. That's crazy. Um, I want to ask you a question that, you know, tell my listeners about 9-11, a firefighter's story. Well, after my close encounters that day, I got this amazing footage of the towers collapsing and the firefighters running down the street and then everything goes black. Um, I went back to make a, a follow-up. I wanted to know what had happened to them and how they were coping with it. Um, so 9-11, the firefighter story is a story of what happened to the firefighters that were with me that morning that survived and what happened to the, them and their colleagues. So it's a story. I spent three or four months with them after 9-11. I was down at ground zero most days watching and filming them clearing the area and looking for any anything they could find that was of, of, of uh, human interest, which sadly there wasn't. Anything, everything was pulverised. Um, even the armour plate glass windows were pulverised into like little green balls of like marbles. Incredible. So you can imagine what it did to a human body that was anywhere near that. Um, so I spent many months with the firefighters going out on fire calls with them and also with them searching the area. And, um, and that was quite amazing. And, and again, I was so close. It was a personal story following 
Mike, the battalion chief, and 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 Steve Gregory and Arthur Lacciotis that were the officers that survived the fall with me in West Street that morning, and um, I think I became part of their brotherhood sort of thing, you know. And it was amazing that uh, what help I had making the film, and I think because I had been involved with them that morning, they felt that I was part of the family really, and they let me into their world, which which was quite amazing and. And I got so close to them, and I, I made a documentary about them and their families and how they come to terms with it. And uh, it was quite a moving film. And I, I believe that film is is the one that the fire department used to show their new recruits that captured the events of that day or some of the events of that day. And other firefighters dealt with it. And um, it was quite a moving time for me. Mm. I want to shift gears from filmmaking now to music. Uh, I want to talk about your brush with what I consider to be the greatest band ever made. Um, tell us about working with the Beatles. Yes, I'd only started in uh, my career with cameras. This was in this 1963. I become a press photographer on the paper in Leeds. And um, at the same time, the pop era had just started and I thought well you know being a teenager this was a great thing that was happening uh, so I decided to practice I decided to practice my photographic um, techniques using the pop groups as an essay as a photographic essay really so I got to know and or I knew many of the managers of the theatres where these groups were appearing and I managed to get backstage passes to go and take pictures and the first band I met was a group called the Beatles and uh, at the Odeon uh, Theatre in Leeds and um, I got to meet the four of them and uh, they let me take photographs of them just messing around backstage and on stage and uh, that was great that I was that close to them. And Beatlemania was just beginning to start. So the guys weren't famous at all. Uh, well, they were famous, but not as famous as they became. And they were on their first tour. And Leeds was one of their first performances. So it was all new to them too. Um, and I, I, I met them on two or three occasions. <clears throat> so I would follow with my camera, the groups around the cinemas in the north of England. And on one day, I took my girlfriend with me to Huddersfield, where the Beatles were appearing. And this is a great story. This this is the one thing that I'm really uh, pleased with. Um, we went, we arrived in the auditorium about four o'clock in the afternoon, and uh, it was pitch black, and the theatre manager let us sit in in the auditorium and said well there's nobody coming in here until five six o'clock so we i know we were early so we sat there in the darkness we'd only been there about five minutes and all the stage lights came on and on what the beatles with their vox amplifiers and, and and everything else and they began singing um a song that had just been released that day called I Want to Hold Your Hand. It was the first time that they'd sung this on a public stage, the four of them, so they were 
rehearsing and rehearsing. And so for two hours they played I Want to Hold You Around to their audience, which was just myself and my girlfriend, which was quite amazing. Um, so for two hours we heard th this music being played over and over again. And afterwards I got them to come down into the auditorium where we'd been sitting and I took some great pictures of them sitting there and with their feet up on the chairs and everything. It was uh, quite amazing. And um, uh, I met Paul and team three or four times after that, and they actually got to know me quite well. I remember going to see them in Manchester, and I went backstage. They just arrived, and then I had this voice shot. Oh, Paul, it's Paul. Paul's here. Uh, he doesn't like doing stage pictures. Let's let's do some different. And it was John Lennon. Mm. And he knew I wanted to try and get some different pictures of him. And um, he said, why don't we play at train? So they got four chairs set up in this dressing room. And he said, I'm going to be the engine driver. And uh, Paul can be the guard. And the other two can sit in the middle. So I got this great picture of them playing at trains with John, Levin, John <laughs> Lennon driving. Um, <laughs> so it was great. And, and, and Paul would, I got to know Paul quite well. And he would ask me how my photography was Doing, I said, "Oh, I'm doing all right." I didn't ask them how they were doing because we knew how well they were doing, <laughs> uh, and certainly making more money than I was. But um, no, it was a great time, a great time, and again, I was in the the right place at the right time. You know, it was superb, and I met the Stones, um, and then later Jimi Hendrix. Um, we met Pink Floyd at Leeds University. Roger Waters invited myself and a reporter from the paper down to their recording in Abbey Road Studios while the, when they were recording tracks for uh, Piper at the Gates of Dawn, their first uh, LP, as we used to call them, their first right. album. And that was great, and I took pictures of them there, and I believe I've got the only picture of them recording in Abbey Road, which was amazing. Um, so I had a great time with them all, Marion Faithful, The Hollies, The Searchers, Hendrix. You name it, I've seen them all. What was Hendrix like? Quiet, very quiet guy backstage. I didn't spend a lot of time with him at all. I just took some pictures of him backstage, but it was very quiet but very helpful for me, and I got some great pictures. Uh, I, I actually took the pictures while they were appearing at the... Uh, um, Ilkley Moor Hotel in Ilkley. The show had started and about 700 girls had crammed into the room that the, he was appearing in with his group. And within, or after the first number, I think, the police came in and stopped the actual show because of too many people and it was deemed a fire risk and things. So I went backstage and I took these pictures of him Um uh, which was amazing. Um, he wasn't perturbed that the show had been cancelled, but again, it, I think it's because I'm there, things happen, you know, so uh, it was quite yeah. quite incredible. What is the documentary subject that is on your bucket list? Well, I'd like to do one about cyber, uh, as I mentioned earlier. <clears throat> I'd also like to do one about... Uh, uh, shooters, school shooters, and others that shoot people, 
Um, but I think that will take quite a bit of research. I'm intrigued in, into the, into the minds of these people, and it's something that's something as we all know, virtually every other day now, certainly in America, mm. and not so at all in the UK, but very much so in the States. And I, I think there's more to, I'd love to get into the heart of that subject and make a film, but um, again, it's going to take quite a bit of research. I'm also doing lots of fine art photography at the moment, uh, but my main task now is I'm, I'm writing a book about all these stories and my life behind the camera over the past 60 odd years so that's that's going to be fascinating when i've done that but i can't get a publisher <laughs> apparently because i'm not a celebrity um i'm not known outside the media business that uh um they don't seem to be that interested although my stories are quite spectacular as you know and uh um i think it would be a great story for uh for for, for the readers uh to to to, I'm, I'm doing it because I want people to know what it's like behind the camera. We all look at television and, and, and newspaper pictures and magazine pictures, but you never hear the story of what goes on behind the camera. And those with the camera are actually doing most of the time what the people in the, ac the action, what they're actually photographing are doing as well. So it's the stories behind the camera, what's happened to me, uh, behind the camera while I've been making all these shows with Hollywood stars, military, police, fire, lifeboat rescues and all that sort of thing and what I, what I myself have got myself into. So it should be a fascinating story, I think. But again, I I, I, I don't know why I'm, I'm, I'm not being uh, touted by other publishers, you know. Everybody I've talked to about it and have seen samples of my work think it's an amazing story, which mm. I think it is. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, we'll we'll, uh, we'll see what happens with that. Fair enough. Pierre de Coubertin said the most important thing in life is not the triumph, but the struggle. You get a chance to talk to your younger self. What would you say to him? I think not only to him, but to everybody, that you've got to live every day as though it's your last. And I know because I've experienced my nearly last days. But it's really brought it home to me how precious life is. And I think if everybody had experienced something similar to what I've experienced, they would value every minute that they're alive. I think about death every day now. Um, it can come at you from any quarter. And to all those that I I filmed that have been involved in death experiences or near-death experiences, it's come out of the blue and you just don't know whether you're walking down a city street or traveling in a plane or in a car or what's coming next. And being as close to death as I've been makes you think about it more and more often. I think about it every day, actually. And everywhere I go, I look and can I get an escape route out of there? Or if this happens, you know, how do I get out of it? And this sort of thing. And uh, if people realised how precious life was, that within a second it could be snuffed out just like that. Um, I think life in general, life with everybody would be much better. And I, I don't think we'd have all these wars and various other things that are going on all over the world. 
people would appreciate it. I mean, look at the people in the earthquakes and in the forest fires that we've been having and all that sort of thing. They didn't know that was coming, and within minutes, an hour or so, their lives completely turned around if they even if they escaped death. So that's not a 9-11 situation. That's happening every day somewhere in the world now. And it does you it does make you appreciate life a lot. And I do appreciate life a lot now. And then try and enjoy and do what I want to do myself every day. As we enter the final phase of the interview, I always like to ask one fun question. And that is, you know, what do you like to do for fun? What do you like to do to relax? Just sit down and be quiet. <laughs> um what do I do to relax? Um, um, I run the lifeboat rescue. Uh, I like that. Although that's not relaxing. No, I just like to go somewhere with my family, my wife and family, and just sit quiet, whether it's on a beach or somewhere, whether the sun's shining, which we, we don't see much of these days in the UK. Um, uh, and and, and uh, read a book and um, just take it easy. And think how lucky I am to be where I am at the time. Um, so I, 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 apart from my interest in photography and cinema work, and writing my book, that's what I do as hobbies now, I suppose, because uh, I'm getting on a bit, and um, try and look after my health uh, and just um, be with the family as much as I can, and uh, enjoy holidays as much as I can with them. And, um, uh, and and see what happens next. What would be the best way for my listeners to follow your adventures online? Run my adventures online. Um, <clears throat> I, I've got uh, a couple of websites where uh, the 9-11 film's on and uh, one of my other films. I'm going to put some more on shortly. Uh, 9-11, the firefighter story is on my website called Paul Berry Productions co.uk uh, as is all my rock legends pictures all my pop stars are all on that so if they want to look at me on that um i'm writing the book which i'm calling um wrong place right time which i've always been at with their own place at the right time and um, I have another website, rocklegends1960s.com, and all my rock legends, pictures of the Beatles and the Stones and the others are all on there as well. Uh, so that's how they can get close to me. I've got an audio book out about the 9-11 um, uh, incident, uh, which is uh, available in audio book form on Kobo Writing Life at the moment. So... They can listen to it on there. It's very uh, good. It's very good. So um, we, um, and that is actually the last chapter in my book, uh, which we decided to put, uh, I was advised to put it on an audio because of the drama of it all. And uh, uh, we'll see what happens with that. Um, mm. But as I say, I'm, I'm just anxious to get a publisher uh, now to, um, to go with the book I, I, I've not quite finished it I've got a couple of more chapters to do but that is from when I started when I was 12 years old to the present day so it's full of interesting stories as you can imagine Derek so um, that should be a fun read hmm. 
I enjoy your Instagram page as well. That's uh, a good one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. I, Paul, I am my interviews with my favorite question. And the question is this, if the entire planet was listening to this broadcast, what would be the one thing you would like to say to the people of earth? Just look at every day as being so precious. Still, I think that is the important thing. Just live life for the for that moment and enjoy every day because it could be your last. Okay. Paul, you are the very definition of a walking, talking miracle and a man who has lived an extraordinary life. Uh, I am very honored you have come on my show today. So thanks for taking the time out of your very busy schedule to do so. Thank you, Derek. It's been a pleasure to join you. And just like that, Devon Nation, we come to the end of episode 202. I want to thank Paul from the bottom of my heart for being so generous with his time and for being so forthright with his diagnosis. I want to wish him nothing but the best for the remaining years, and I do hope we get him back on the show again to tell some more stories of his incredible life, as there was so much more material that we just did not have time to cover. Okay, tune again next time as we showcase another extraordinary person. We drop our episodes on Mondays and Thursdays, so be sure to keep checking your favorite podcast streaming channel for that episode to drop. Also, I think it's fair to ask you, the listener, have you enjoyed this episode? I truly hope you have, so please go and hit that subscribe button to keep up to date for when new episodes drop. Also, if you're feeling generous, please drop us a review. We love reading what our listeners have to say about us, good or bad. We are still enjoying our partnership with the Amazing Tea Public. The Derek Duvall Show has a great little store on there. And we have everything with our logo on it, including magnet stickers and mugs. Plus, we have some really fun t-shirts on there that Mrs. Duvall and I added ourselves. So please go to our website, DerekDuvallShow.com. Go to the banner of the left that says merch. Click that, and you'll be taken to our store on Tea Public. And once again, I want to thank them for being such great partners with the show. On behalf of myself and the entire team here at the Derek Duvall Show, I want to say to each and every one of you listening, speaking of the Beatles... Has everyone had a chance to listen to the new track they just released called Now and Then? It's stunning and a true wonder to the power of AI that it can accomplish. If you have not heard it yet, after this episode is finished, and it will be finished in a few seconds, go find it immediately and check it out. Give the music video a pass. It was a bit weird. I'm not going to lie to you. But the song itself was powerful. And if this truly is the Beatles' swan song, I cannot think of a better way for it all to end. Absolutely fantastic. And Peter Jackson, I know you're not listening, but if you ever do listen to this episode, sir, take a bow. You deserve it. No star, God bless. And see you next time. Planet Earth. This has been a recording of The Derek Duvall Show, and we thank you for listening. Please go to our website, DerekDuvallShow.com for links to merchandise and to explore past episodes. Please find us on social media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Derek Duvall Show.